Okay, so today is October 15th. It is 2017. The message is called Co-Conspirator and Covenant Benefits. Co-Conspirator. It is uh, Frank Kelsky's birthday today, y'all. We have a few uh, other things happening this week to please be praying about. It's my understanding that Kaysen Adarmez is going to have a, albeit minor surgery, an important one. So please be praying for the Adarmez family. Is that Tuesday? Tuesday. Please be praying for them. We're a church that loves adoption, loves the nations, loves what Jesus is doing on earth. Amen? Amen. Y'all turn with me to 1 Samuel 18. I'm trying a new trick this week. I, oh, it's good to see you guys. Y'all made it in from Dallas, Tracy and Dan. Love y'all. I blew up my notes this week to a size font that I think I can read without my grandpa glasses. So, so we'll see. I'm cheating, you know. Uh, next to be in Braille. First Samuel 18, our message, co-conspirator and covenant benefits. In 1 Samuel 18, beginning in verse 1, are you there? Do you love the Word of God? You're about to love it even more. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David... Because he loved him as himself. Why did he make the covenant? Because he loved him. It's a pretty interesting thing. This in Hebrew actually says the nefesh of Jonathan was kushar with the nefesh of David. Your nefesh in Hebrew is your soul. It is your life being. It is the vital breath that God put inside of you. It is what makes you... You. Is that fair enough to say? When we say the nefesh of Jonathan was kashar with the nefesh of David, kashar is a Hebrew word of attachment, binding. I want to read you a little bit about it. A verb meaning to conspire. It's strong 7194. Uh, to bind. It refers literally to binding or tying something. So in Genesis 38, when Perez breaches the womb first and gets a cord tied around his hand, that tying is a kashar, just like you would tie your shoes. But it implies more than that. When Rahab tied the red cord outside of her house, she kashard the cord. Can I tell you there's more going on there than just tying a cord? Because the action saved her life. The previous action uh, showed the firstborn and uh, marked his inheritance forever. As you go forward, the word is used in Nehemiah to talk about closing the wall. How many thousand sermons have been preached about the wall of Nehemiah as more than just a physical wall? It Standing in the breach for each other, so many different ways. My favorite way to think of Kashar, though, it'll help you with this, starts in Genesis 44. So we're going to come back to Samuel, but put your finger in Genesis 44, and we're going to start in verse 30. And this will drive home what I'm trying to say about Kashar for you. This all refers to the phrase, become one in spirit with David. In Genesis 44, beginning in verse 30. So now, 
If the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees the boy isn't there, he will die. Let me set that stage for you. What we have happening is Judah is appealing to Joseph. Joseph is the Pharaoh of Egypt at the time, and Judah doesn't know he's talking to Joseph. You all familiar with the story? So we got Joseph incognito, right? He's hidden. And this gives these two men a chance to express their heart without all of those brotherly posturing positions. He knows that what Judah is saying is not based upon Judah trying to impress Joseph because he doesn't realize it's him. Um, This provides some unique insight. Watch what happens. So now, if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, the father's Jacob, and if my father, Jacob, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, the boy here is Benjamin, their life closely bound up, Kashar. This is a similar phrase. My father's life is Kashar with Benjamin. He sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Can you imagine being so closely bound up with someone that their absence would cause you to feel like you died? Anybody ever had a seventh grade crush? I may have grown up in one of the least compassionate homes on the planet. I, uh, I had a little junior high kind of girlfriend for all of about 30 seconds. And uh, I broke up with her before a dance. And she called and told me she was going to kill herself. And I asked my mother what to do, and my mother said, tell her to do it. And, uh, you know, being the semi-obedient young man that I was, I said, yeah, you should probably do that. She said, I hate you. And she was no longer heartbroken over our, uh, it, it was wisdom on my mother's part. Her heart was no longer bound up with mine. We can think that our hearts are bound up with people. But for a son to say about his father, if that boy dies, it'll kill my dad. And it's not a figure of speech. How closely do you think their hearts were bound up? Your servant will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. And let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. Man, can you feel the emotion in this passage? You get the impression Judah would rather die than have to go home? He's offering himself as a slave. By the way, the next few verses, Joseph is so moved by what he's seeing. And remember, he's supposed to be Pharaoh and they don't don't know it's Joseph. He begins crying out loud and everybody hears him. He has to excuse himself from the room at the thought of this. Judah is pleading with the Pharaoh and is willing to become a slave rather than to have to tell Jacob that Benjamin is not coming home. The Pharaoh, who is, of course, Joseph, can't control his emotions and begins to weep at the thought of breaking old Jacob's heart. The emotional bonds of Jacob and Benjamin are described in Hebrew as kashar. In this text, it's exactly like David and Jonathan. There's no reason to make something ugly out of David and Jonathan's relationship. They loved each other so much that the Bible calls them one 
in purpose, one in spirit, like their lives were literally intermingled with each other. This is important today as we talk about co-conspirators because that's how we're going to be with Christ. We are sharing something with Him. And He has shared His Spirit with us. It's also important as we talk about covenant benefits because in the modern sense of the word, this is not how we think of covenants, right? In the modern sense of the word, our contracts protect our legal interests usually in hostile circumstances. You know how many of you went to uh, buy a car and when you signed that contract it was because of your great love for the people that you were uh, negotiating with no it's it's actually the opposite huh you walk in prepared for war how many of you when you signed your mortgage papers for your house all 380 pages was it a statement of mutual affection for one another in the biblical sense The legal aspects of covenant can be present, but notice the motive of Jonathan is not legal protection. He didn't enter into a covenant with David because he was seeking legal protections or rights. He entered into it because he loved him as he loved himself. His very soul was bound up with David. He is literally becoming a co-conspirator with David towards God's purposes in establishing the Davidic kingdom. They're bound together on a primal, integral, and living or life level. Their covenant was not merely a legal instrument to ensure fair treatment. It was born out of the phrase, he loved him as himself. Isn't that entirely different than when you signed your visa contractual obligation? Isn't it entirely different than most contracts that we sign? Anybody ever install Microsoft Office product? Right? You, you have to click the little box that says, I accept these terms. Does that make you want to hug the screen and give it a long, uh, passionate embrace? If it does, we need to talk about other problems you have. <laughs> Our covenants are not based on deep emotional connections most of the time. That's why we refer to them as contracts. And we have all of these other words. But in the Bible... They were closely related to those deep emotional connections. When Jonathan made a covenant with David, it was binding just like a legal contract, and yet that was nobody's motive. Their motive was simply how deeply they loved each other. I'd like to show you the paleo for the word kashar. Is that okay? This is strong 7194 kashar. Here, when we see a, a kuf, a shin, and a resh, Those pictorial representations at the bottom have to do with something that looked like the sunrise and so it resembled a circle or time, but most often meant to condense. The next one, shin, looked like... (laughs) It's supposed to look like two front teeth. I guess you can describe what that looks like. Uh, It meant sharp, press, eat, or very often meant two. And then the rash... Looked like the head of a man. It meant head, top, or beginning. The very word kashar means to condense to from the beginning. As you're starting to hear that, you might understand its relationship to covenant then. Kashar is the binding together of two things. The attachment of two things. The intermingling of two things. Kind of like from the beginning when he said the two shall become one. The basis for covenant in all of the Bible 
is really the marriage covenant. It is when two people give up self-interest and they sacrifice self to join as co-conspirators in the purposes of God. Does that make sense to you? So when we're struggling to think about what our covenants look like with the Lord, what our covenants look like with each other, they're all going to involve self-sacrifice. They're all going to involve love being the motivator. And they ought never just boil down to what our obligations are. If you define your life with Christ as obligation, you have missed the point. It's when you love Him more than you love yourself that you want to join in His purposes. Amen? If you are in covenant with people because you're in covenant with the Lord and you think in terms of obligation... (laughs) Okay, so my wife and I fell madly in love with each other a long, long time ago. But we entered into covenant 24 years ago. And we took vows during that covenant. Are those vows there so that... I can remind her every day of what she's legally obligated to do for me and me for her. They were an expression of love. The vows grew out of the emotional bond. It was not um, the result of legal wrangling. It was the result of two hearts that were being intermingled. And the reason that you had the vows was to describe it for all time's sake, right? Have you ever really, really loved someone, but then Tuesday came? I mean, you really, really love someone, but in this moment, well, sometimes vows and symbols are there to remind you of what you've promised. They're there as a sign to rem- so that you remember the emotional bond that instituted the covenant. But those signs and symbols ought not be viewed as bars to trap you there. That's not how Jesus works. Hopefully, even before I begin to draw these parallels for you, you're beginning to see that we're actually talking about our covenant with Jesus. We've become co-conspirators with Christ. He loved us and taught us to love Him and to love others more than ourselves. Just like Jonathan loved David more than he loved himself. We have become and are becoming with Him one in spirit. And we're going to see his kingdom brought about in our lives. Interestingly enough, Kashar is not just in the prophets here. Samuel is in the prophets. We see this in the law as well, and it's used in the most interesting way. Would you like to see it? Let's go to Deuteronomy 6. Say there when you're there. My hope is that there'll be no way that you don't take away very practical life lessons from this. And in the end, my hope is that you draw closer to the Lord and the people you're in covenant with. Because ultimately, that's how we express the kingdom of God on earth. Deuteronomy 6, 8. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. That word, tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads. This is Kashar. We're talking about more than just putting phylacteries on your arms or putting a box on your head. God wanted them to be intertwined with you in a way that the tying was actually showing that you were becoming one in spirit with His Word. See, when David and Jonathan became one in spirit, they were still two human beings. This means that they were acting in one accord for one purpose. 
When you're tying the word to yourself, the point was you were intertwining your destiny. If the word of God fails, then I'll fail. But if the word of God succeeds, then I'll succeed because I'm going to do what it says. Co-conspirators with the word of God. Obviously, God wanted more than just a physical attachment. He wanted us to become one in soul with the living word on a primal, on an integral, and on a living level. From the beginning of your walk, throughout your walk, by integrating it in every level, and in a daily living uh, practice. He wants that with the word of God. This is what's wrong with seeing salvation as something that happened to you in the past. It was on a primal level. It was there from the beginning, but it's not there on an integral level. It's not there being integrated into every part of your life. For it not to be there on a living or an ongoing level means it's something that happened to you in the past. Now again, think back to marriage. You were married in the past, right? What's wrong with the English statement? You were married. It implies you're now not. Well, you were saved in 1983. Well, what does that mean about you right now? You were married. You are married. And in the future, you will still be married. You were saved. You are saved. You are being saved, will be saved. All three tenses of covenant are there. The emotional bonds that they grew out of were intended to be lifelong. How many of you got married for a specific term? No? Jen, when we reach the 25th year, you're going to trade me in? You know, the way we count our years with anniversaries is a bit deceiving. We've accomplished 24. We're actually walking in the 25th now. See how important it is if you approach it from a legal standpoint? I would, I would be being traded in right now and didn't even know it. I'm glad we didn't enter into a legal contract only. What the legalities were doing were expressing the emotional bond between us. How about Deuteronomy 11 and verse 18? Turn a couple pages. Come on now. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your heads. Okay, take out a machete, cut open your chest, pull out your heart and tie the words to it. No, that's probably not what he's talking about. Then the kashar that he's talking about has to do with an emotional figurative attachment, not just putting them on your hands, right? Having covered it in the prophets, having covered it in the law, there's only one other section of the Tanakh that we can look at, and that's the writings. Turn with me to Proverbs 7. When you get to Proverbs 7, say, I'm there, Pastor. I'm there, Pastor. Oh, those two are fast. It's Frank's birthday, and he's just on the spot today. How about you, Paul? The left side of the room, you holding it down over there? It's the left side of the room as I'm looking at it, but as you're looking at it, you're on the right side of things, man. It's all a matter of perspective. In Proverbs 7, verse 1, My son, keep my words and store up my commands within you. Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. That's a Hebrew idiom for your pupil. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablets of your heart. Come on now. What do we put on our fingers as a sign and symbol of our marriage covenant? Wedding rings. Now, is that the extent of your commitment or is that a reminder of your commitment? 
See, you could physically tie God's words to your finger and that wouldn't do a thing to get them on the tablet of your heart, would it? The thing on your finger was supposed to be representing what was going on in your heart. So which comes first, the tying on your finger or the writing in your heart? Better be the writing in your heart. Ladies, if he's not attached to you at all until after you're married, then why did he marry you? Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, one girl in the back go, yep. <laughs> Look, just to be clear, <laughs> what is at stake here is whether or not we are simply buying fire insurance to get saved whether we're quoting verses and saying, oh, because I know these couple verses, God has to save me. Now, I don't think we've got him on a technicality. What's more, I don't think our relationship with him or with each other is based on restriction or obligation. I think it's based on the deep emotional bonds that happen when you deny self and care more about someone else than you care about yourself. The Lord wants us to become co-conspirators with His Word. Being one with the Spirit of the Word is being in covenant with the Lord. Not out of some legal pretense, but because we love Him more than ourselves. Now, I don't know if you all know what a cognate is, but when we're looking at a Hebrew word, kashar, one of the things that we can do is the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek. We can see what that word is in Greek, and see if it appears anywhere in the New Testament. It turns out that the cognate for kashar is the Greek word, Strong's 4887, sundeo. It's only used once in the entire biblical canon. Listen to the way that it's used. It's very revealing. It's beautiful. It comes from Hebrews chapter 13. Say there when you're there. Judah beat you this time, Frank. Frank was second, and Caitlin's mocking y'all with a little grin that she beat you to. Y'all there? You doing okay today? You want to know more about co-conspiracy? You're already all wrapped up in it. You might as well find out who gets shot in the end, you know? Hebrews 13.1, keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. A more literal reading of this passage would say, as if you were sundeo or kashar with them. That portion that says, as if you were their fellow prisoners is actually drawing on, on the Hebrew concept of kashar. He's saying, remember those in prison as if you were one in spirit with them, bound on a primal, integral, and living basis. In other words, it's not, oh, well, sucks to be them. When you see them in prison, it's the same as if you were in prison because you share a oneness with them based on the covenant of Christ. See, when David fell into hardship, Jonathan felt it. When Jonathan was suffering a threat, David felt it. They were one with each other. Not because they had to be, but because they loved the other one more than themselves. Oh, church, what would it look like if the Christian world acted this way? 
See, we wouldn't look in... I, by the way, does anybody in here want to be in prison? <laughs> That's a really silly question for some of us, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. No, we do all we can to get out of prison, to stay out of prison. I'm not going to ask how many in here been in prison, but I, I spent a night or two uh, in places I didn't want to be from time to time. What would you have to think about the other person to be one with them while they were in prison? See, you would have to deny your own freedoms. You'd have to deny your own rights. You wouldn't look and go, look what they did. For you to be bound with them, kashar with them, would mean that you were dying to those things considering that you were in their shoes. Not glad you weren't. Disappointed that they're standing in there alone and the one that you love and that you're standing with is separated from you. Do you hear the difference between obligation and admiration? See, when you... I don't want to get into Bonhoeffer and Neumeiler, but these were two German theologians standing on separate sides of the bars for the stands that they had taken. How sad that is. Sometimes we find ourselves on separate sides of the bars from Christians. Somebody we supported for years, loved for years, at the smallest pretense, decided to burn down and trash our whole ministry in one phone call. I couldn't believe it. Like, wow. In Christ, our motive is not what we can get from each other. It's not expediency. And nobody is expendable. When we join together with each other, it's out of love for Christ and a growing love for each other. A growing covenant. Amen? Amen. The only way that you could be one with somebody in prison is if you love them more than yourselves. This kind of covenant doesn't ask, what do I have to do? It instead is compelled by love and union to act. When examining biblical covenant, it's a mistake to think like a lawyer. Very sorry, Keith. Our covenants are motivated by love and freedom. They're not motivated by fear, loss, and restriction. Now, the reason I said don't think like a lawyer is because the reason contracts are written the way they are is to mitigate loss to try to eliminate fear, create some security, to make sure that no restrictions placed on you and all restrictions placed on the other party. I know, I once signed a lease that was that disfavorable to me. Literally, if I, many years after the lease is completed, was sent a letter, I had to pay it regardless of whether or not I owed it, and after I paid it, then we could discuss whether or not I originally owed it. Does that sound fair? That's how the world writes leases. In the kingdom, though, our relationships are based on an act of self-denial and loving our brother first. That makes our covenant work right. If you find yourself asking what you have to do for your spouse, you've made a serious mistake. If you find yourself asking in a Christian relationship, do I really have to do this? You've made a serious mistake. We ought to be asking, what is love compelling us to do? Does that make sense? What are you compelled by? Fear of loss or by a burning love that you feel from Jesus? You might have to get Jesus' view of someone to know how Jesus loves them. Let's look at another mention of covenant between these same two men. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 20. Are you there? 
I went to sleep feeling really good last night. Some of that was because the Aragina's cooked for me. Some of it was because Justin Treister brought over some Sabbath wine. It was extraordinary. But most of it was because I spent the day digging with Justin Linton. Can I tell you, if you're not sleeping well, dig a little while. You, you sleep really well that night. I remembered all the reasons that I don't want to dig. You know? Three young men dug for like five hours. They made almost as much progress as Justin made in the first 35 minutes. To really love someone, you show up on moving day. Not because you have to. Not because they showed up on your moving day. Not because of obligation, but because you love them. When you really, really love someone, you show up and dig their sewer lines for them. Are you in 1 Samuel 20? In 1 Samuel 20... I want to just pick a few verses. Let's start with uh, three. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. Now, David feels himself a step away from death. That's That's a difficult position to be in, isn't it? Skip down to verse 8. This is David also speaking. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. David realized that the commitments they were making to each other were in fact commitments to the Lord. Do you know why? Because both men belong to the Lord. Commitments that we make to each other are made before the Lord. The Lord binds them on you and the Lord has to release you from them. We talked about that a little Wednesday night. But this is where this gets good. Are you ready for that? Look at verse 14. Jonathan speaking. But show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house. David, uh, Jonathan made a covenant with the, with the what? House. house of David. This covenant grew from a covenant between two men to a covenant between two households. Kind of like we came to Texas to see one life changed at a time and we started to realize that that was turning into one family at a time. Anybody want to guess where the next covenant goes? To the nations. There are three covenants between these men's. The first one, men's, between these two men. The first one affects their lives as individuals. The second one affects their family line. And the third one affects the kingdom dynasties that would or would not come from them. A covenant that is based on love grows as love grows. Uh, Anybody remember your marriage vows? Of course you remember them, but you don't want to stand and recite them, right? Let's spit out a few generic ones, right? We say, uh, in poverty or in uh, riches, in sickness or in... Okay, so that about sums up in the all-encompassing relationship that you have, right? No, actually you've become more and more intertwined over time if, if you're married, right? I mean, actually, that was the smallest, briefest way to describe your covenant. That was, 
In fact, maybe just like a representative promise, but that has grown into a whole life and lifestyle, hasn't it? Our covenant with the Lord is like that. He makes you promise from the very beginning that you're going to die, right? That just gets all lesser concerns out of the way. What you don't realize is the more you love Him and the longer that you love Him, the more ways in which you get to die for Him. You follow me? Like you'd really rather not be kind to that guy because you think he's a just horrific jerk. But because the Lord's doing something in his life and yours, you're going to die to your desire to tell him what a terrific jerk he is. And you're instead going to bless him. Right? That is, that is being crucified. It's letting your will perish in front of the Lord. Man, if you only died once, that would just be one heroic act. But the truth is, that's not the difficult part. The difficult part is that in living for him, you're actually dying all day, every day. Well, we know that about Jesus, but who in your life is a human being that you're doing that for? I keep pointing to a wife. I keep pointing to a spouse. That is a covenant that you ought to have and feel in your life. It's the example for the church. But the truth is, is David and Jonathan were not husband and wife, were they? They actually were two separate households. See, your relationship with the Lord is reflected in how you deal with other people that you're not married to. See, that's incredible, isn't it? I know. I went to the DPS a few weeks ago. I didn't feel particularly attached to those people. In Louisiana, we'd say them people from over there, you know, from across the pond. You know, something was wrong with them people. They woke up wrong. They woke up with half a mind. They woke up with something. I didn't feel particularly attached to them, so I didn't particularly treat all of them like Christ. But aren't we called to? And if they are, in fact, in Christ, how much more must we do good to the family of believers? See, we ought not be talking about terms of restriction. David is a step away from death, but he's destined for life and kingship. He appeals to Jonathan because of the covenant of love between the two of them. Jonathan helps David and they expand their covenant as a natural extension of the love they share. We're not talking about missions because we must. We're talking about missions because we love. We're not talking about partnering with people because we must. We're talking about doing it for righteousness' sake. We're not talking about obligation. We're talking about what is our privilege. Do you hear the difference in those things? There are so many things I want to share with you, and we have a different age level throughout the room. But they're all kind of daily discussions husbands and wives can have that if it turns into obligation, ruins it for everybody. You know? You want each other to really want each other. We're grown-ups. You can hear that, can't you? Well, in the Christian life, you can't work with someone because they feel like they must. Wade Sutherland's not here because he has no choice or he has an obligation to be here. He's here because he loves the Lord and he loves us. Matthew Pirro is not here because he's an indentured servant. 
Matthew Pirro is here because he loves. He fell in love with the Lord and that made him love unlovable people like me and Wade. And the longer we serve together, the more we love each other. So our covenant started as basic agreements to work together. And it has grown into our families actually living together. It's grown into stretching around the world together. It's grown into sharing one bank account. I mean, we're downright weird now. Do you have growing covenants in your life? Or do you have a shrinking life based on restriction and obligation? See... Jerusalem was supposed to spread to Judea, Judea to Samaria, Samaria to the ends of the earth. We're supposed to be ever reaching outward, not, not ever separating and shrinking and restricting. That's, that, that's just the right road, but the wrong direction. You follow me? Like you got on the right path, you just need to repent and turn around and run the exact opposite direction of the one you're trying to run. Turn with me to 1 Samuel. Actually... Let's just read this again. 1 Samuel 20, 14. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my... Do you see how the covenant grew from David and Jonathan to now Jonathan's family? Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. That's really special since Jonathan's family was the enemy of David. <laughs> you, 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 you get the nuance there? So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. Now their houses are in covenant with each other. May the Lord call David's enemies to account, and Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. See, Some would read this and say, well, self-preservation is at work. David worried that he was a step away from death. And Jonathan worried that David was coming into power and he'd wipe out his family line. That is not why the Bible says they made the covenant. I'm going to tell you the truth. I hear it all the time. You need to be saved so that you be saved from hell. I don't know that that's... I mean, of course. Look, I, I, I had never had any problem telling people... If you don't love the Lord with an undying love, you are going to hell. It's not hard for me to say. I'll sit with you, say it to your mom, your dad, your grandma. It's, it's, it is a reality like gravity. I, that's not hard, but that's not why I got saved. I had a tremendous, overwhelming revelation of my wickedness. That's true. What really saved me, though, is when I cried out to Him, Lord, change me. I fell in love with him because I felt him changing me. Does that make sense? It was not just a pardon. The pardon was like the byproduct of of the loving bond we shared. The pardon is what happened because we fell in love. It's not why we fell in love. Does that make sense? I don't know what to say other than Jonathan and David. Their covenants benefited each other, but... Even if they didn't benefit each other, it seems like they would have made them because they loved each other. After all, Jonathan, he's the rightful next king. But he's making a covenant with David acknowledging that he's going to be the king. We all kind of do that though, don't we? When you stop being the rightful king of your life and you accepted Jesus as king of your life, you struck a covenant with each other. 
Are you living up to that covenant? Is that covenant reflected in your relationships with the people around you? I see very few actual covenants in ministry. I see very few in pastorates especially. Pastorates are like the king of their own castles, man. Their name's first on the sign. If anybody else's name is there, then they make sure that they are written in a subordinate fashion. I, I am the one great man. I mean, that's really what they're saying. I believe, we believe in this ministry that our covenants are based on a love that we share for each other that is not obligation. It's that we don't want to let each other down and we've joined in the exact same work. That work is growing, not shrinking. What was once in a living room and, and then um, in a storefront and now in warehouses has stretched to five continents and we're partners in all five continents. Many of us are accused of rejecting our families, huh? When we fall in love with Jesus, we enter into covenant with Him. And that causes our families often to feel like the odd man out. Am I wrong? Like, you ever been at one of those ridiculous dinner parties? And you remember? You remember after you're there for a little while why you don't go very often? Because the whole room excoriated you the whole time for not being there the last time? As if their grand marketing plan to gain your attendance was to belittle and berate you while you are there? Yeah, it's an incredible thing. Keep your finger here. Go with me to 2 Samuel. We're going to start in verse 9. I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 9. I want to suggest something to you, then we're going to pick back up with our covenants. In 2 Samuel 9, David asked, Is there anyone still left of the household of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Did David want to be kind to Saul? Not particularly. They've been at war for a while. Why is David looking to be kind to Saul's descendants? For Jonathan's sake. In other words, the covenant that David made with Jonathan, now, we're about to find out, has lasted to the third generation, and David is going to be kind to Saul's grandson for no other reason than he made a covenant with Jonathan. That's a really interesting shadow and type for us, isn't it? You are not receiving the favor of the Lord on the basis of your relationship. You are receiving the favor of the Lord on the basis of Jesus' relationship. It's for Jesus' sake that God is showing you kindness. It's because your life is hidden in Christ that you receive any benefit from the Father or can talk to Him at all. Oh, man. Turns out these covenants are important. And the more you start to understand how God deals with you in covenant, the more you ought to understand how you deal with others. In covenant, David is asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still left of the house of Saul whom I can show God's kindness? Do you hear in David's speech 
Honoring the covenant with Jonathan was honoring a covenant with God. Being kind to the descendants of Jonathan was doing it on God's behalf because they made the covenant before God. Does that sound like obligation? No, that sounds like loving motivation. Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both of his feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Makir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. If I taught on that, we would be here all day. Lodabar means no pasture. Okay? He's, he's hanging out out there where there's no food. There's no grazing. Nothing's good. So King David had him brought in from Lodabar, from the house of Makir, son of Amiel, when Mephibosheth, man, Mephibosheth, say that with me, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, it's kind of fun to say, isn't it? Can you say it without spitting on your neighbor? When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth. Your servant, he replied, don't be afraid. David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Oh, come on, saints. You were sitting at the table with a great king, not because of your own merit, but because of an ancient covenant that you're benefiting by. You are not there because of your own sake. You are there because of the sake of Christ. And we have to then turn and mirror that to our fellow man. By the way, Mephibosheth, it means exterminator of shame. That's what his name means in Hebrew. Somebody has exterminated your shame. Somebody has come to you and on the basis of an ancient covenant, not motivated on legality, motivated on love, has reached into you and is wiping shame away. And you know what you're supposed to do? Be an extension of that covenant to the rest of mankind. You're supposed to be an ambassador of it. It's supposed to grow from you to your family or a household to your nation to the nation's. The decisions that we're making right now put our children at the table with King Jesus. It goes way beyond petty offenses at a dinner party. You could say that what Jonathan was doing was disloyal to Saul, couldn't you? He's conspiring with You could say that he has not got his family's best interest in mind, couldn't you? These things are all said about me when I got born again. I hear them being said about many of my loved ones in here. It's like ever since you found that church, you just don't care about your family at all. Well, let me ask you, who did a better job of providing for their descendants then? Saul or Jonathan? If you're Mephibosheth, who is it that you credit with you sitting at the king's table? It may be that everything that Jonathan did looked against self-interest, but God looked at it and credited righteousness to his descendants because of it. So I've been telling my family for a long time, I do love the church a lot more than y'all. It's not even close. There's no conflict there. 
Let that sink in. But you can come be a part of the church. And you say, well, that's not right by your family. I don't think you're sitting in a position to be able to judge that. Give it two or three generations and we'll find out how many of mine are at the king's table versus how many of theirs and we'll talk. Okay? I'm interested in the salvation of my family, not their hors d'oeuvres. The covenant between David and Jonathan was not growing out of obligation, but out of a selfless love. So must our covenant with Jesus and his followers grow out of a selfless love. You want to know how you get the covenant to grow? Selfless love. When I see Christy wiping off a desk, and I know she hates cigars, but she loves me, and I love cigars. That puts Christy in a really awkward position. It puts a lot of you in an awkward position. I'm not an easy person to love. That act of selfless love strengthens our covenant. It makes me want to go further in selfless love towards her. Not because we have to. We want to. What are you doing to strengthen the bonds of your covenant with Jesus and with your fellow man? Because they'll only grow one way. This is why Jesus said, if any man would come after me, he must deny himself. That self-denial causes your covenant to grow and become stronger. While you may easily see yourself in covenant with Jesus, which of his followers are you a co-conspirator with? Who's in your jar from, week, from last week? Are you as faithful to the followers of the king as you claim to be to the king? I've noticed everybody, oh, me and Jesus, me and Jesus. He says it, I do it. He's not telling you to be disloyal to them, I promise. I promise. You're co-conspirators. <laughs> you are working towards the same kingship. So he's not telling you to abandon them. That's not possible. You know who does tell you to abandon them? Your own stinking, rotting flesh and the devil. Yeah. And can I tell you personally, in any loving relationship, you're going to have many days where you're like, this has just got to change. Got to get out of here. It's not going to work. My clothes all smell like smoke. So-and-so drank my last gallon of milk. I'm looking over at Kim. Maybe Buddy doesn't pick up his towel off the floor. I don't know. There'd be a hundred reasons for you to break covenant. There'd be a hundred reasons for you to break covenant. But there's at least one good one to keep you in covenant. The more you sacrifice self, the stronger the covenant becomes and the greater the conspiracy's viability becomes. Are you with me? In chapter 18, we saw the expression of a covenant that affects one life at a time. In chapter 20, we see the expression of a covenant that affects one family at a time or a household at a time. Let's move to chapter 23 and you'll see that it deals with nations. Say there when you're there. 1 Samuel 23, beginning in verse 15. While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. 
most interesting thing in these three covenants, the first time David makes a covenant with Jonathan, Saul is uh, favorable towards David. The second time, he's mad and conspiring against David. By the third time, he's out and out trying to kill him whenever he gets the chance. Do you know what persecution caused in the life of David and Jonathan's covenant? It deepened it. The more adversity that you face with the people you're in covenant with, the stronger your covenant will get. The more you have moments where you have to forgive each other, the more your covenant will strengthen. You want to know what it is to be in strong covenant? You're going to have to learn to forgive each other. For that to happen, you have to wrong each other. Nobody's going to set out and try to wrong each other, but what happens is when your brother wrongs you and you love them for the sake of the covenant, you are bound to them despite the wronging, they love you back. And you find out later that you wronged them too. And they loved you anyway. And before long, you realize that you have a precious security that the Baptist church can't make up. It is an eternal security, but not in the way that they think it is, like some strange legality. What you actually have is a covenant with someone that does not walk out on you because you're fallible. They knew it when they made the covenant with you. They're more committed to helping you succeed than discarding you when you don't get it right. See, these are the kind of relationships that build the kingdom, and it's why you don't see them very often. We join together based on strengths and weaknesses. We join together based on mutual interest. We do not join together usually on the basis of self-sacrifice. But when we do, when you form for the right reasons, you become dangerous to the enemy. Oh, saints, I want you to be dangerous to the enemy. And Saul's Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horesh and helped him... Find strength in God. I can't tell you the number of times that my brothers have helped pull me up by my bootstraps. The number of times that someone has had a word for me when I needed it. They're not waiting to disqualify me. They're waiting to qualify me. Just like King Jesus. Not waiting to throw you out, waiting to clean you up, waiting to help you. You know why? We're in covenant. These days, I've gotten to be pretty gentle, laid back, passive. Attack one of my covenant partners and you're going to see a whole new side of me. I don't have any problem looking at a petulant, spoiled person on the end of a Skype call insulting me. I'm dead. I shouldn't be all that insulted, right? But let it turn towards my covenant partners and something else rises inside me. Look, you ought to want to protect your covenant. It ought to be precious. The reason that ministry starts in a home is you learn this with your wife. It expands to your children, even though your children are going to leave you. When you master it in your home with your wife and your children... You are fit to do it in the household of God. Does that make sense? That is why ministry requirements flow out of the home. If you can't keep a covenant with your wife, 
You'll never keep it with the body of Christ or Christ himself. If you can't keep a covenant with your own children, you are unfit for work in the kingdom of God. That, I didn't say that. The apostle Paul did. The churches work to reinterpret it. In fact, if your suit's right, your car's right, and you pick up a big enough collection when you preach, they don't care whether you choke your daughter on a Friday night. I care. I really, really care. How we live at home is our covenant life that we are preaching about on Sundays. So it matters to me whether you're faithful to each other. In fact, I do not keep as a friend a man who will not be faithful to his wife. Period. Won't do it. The only people that I've separated from in ministry over time were those that did things that were immoral, illegal, and usually sexually offensive towards their spouse. I, I don't care what the circumstances are. If you can't be faithful to the most basic covenant in your life, then what do I know that means about you to me? But let's turn that around. If you start by loving the Lord and loving your wife, the natural flow of that is that you love your children. The natural flow of that is that you begin to love households outside of your own. And the kingdom begins to spread. Do you see why the devil's working to tear down our families? Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Even my father knows this. The two of them have made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. Jonathan was next in line to be king, but he chose to help David and become king who would become king in his place. You were the king of your life, but you choose today. To make Jesus king instead. Jesus is first and you are second to him. This may not occur in your lifetime, but our covenants are eternal. Jonathan never became second to David in his lifetime, but he will in the millennial reign. And I'm going to reign with Jesus in the millennial reign. The two men helped each other find strength in God. Think about that for a minute. Somebody in this room may be the key to helping you find strength in the presence of God. The two men helped each other find strength in God. Who were you covenanted with that helps you find strength in God? Or have you decided to go it alone? Which one of the apostles did Jesus send out alone? How did he pair them off? Maybe they would need somebody to help them find strength in God. Are you loyal to your covenant partners? Is it based on love or based on obligation? Selfless loving union on a primal, integral, and living basis is the way of the kingdom. It needs to affect every area of your life. And when you are faithful to the people that are around you, it's an expression of your faithfulness to the Lord. Can you say amen to that? Here in this church, we say, one life, one family, one nation, to describe the expanding nature of the loving covenant and the way that it grows into every sphere of our existence. We started with one life because that's what the Lord told me. When it grew into families doing marriage counseling, we began to acknowledge it. Some of you were the first families in here we did that for. As it reached out to the nations, we saw a natural connection that a life begins to affect a family. A family begins to affect the nations. And one nation is responsible for the other nations. In other words, we're all connected. 
In other circles, the words may change. The nomenclature may vary. But the nature of the covenant must not. Wow. Did you hear me? If that is not the nature of our covenant, that your life affects families and your families affect nations, that we are all connected and related and that none of us is independent of the other, if that is not the nature of our covenant, then with whom are you in covenant? Because that's how Jesus' church started. They had all things in common. They were devoted to the teaching of the apostles, to the fellowship, to prayer, the breaking of bread. They met together every day and in homes week to week. Have you noticed how far the church of Jesus Christ has drifted from the life of Jesus Christ? As co-conspirators with Christ, we will experience benefits of the covenant. These are not legal entitlements, but they are the fruit growing in our covenant and conspiracy with Christ. Loving our beginnings with Him, our continued integration with Him, and our daily living with Him. Each of these things should also be present in the beginning relations with our covenant partners, continued integration in our partners' lives, and our daily living with each other. There is perhaps no better place in all of the Bible to see this at work than Psalm 103. Would you turn with me to Psalm 103? We're right now, right now, at 58 minutes. If you can give me 100% of your attention, I won't waste one minute of your time. Everybody there? Psalm 103. In six verses, we're going to find seven benefits. Six is the number of man, is the number of sin, so I think it's what fits you best. Seven is the number of perfection. It's a divine number. I'd rather focus on our limitations and His blessings as we finish this message. Is that okay? Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise His holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. Wow. From these six verses, I want you to be able to list seven things. So I put them on a slide for you. Number one, forgives all your sins. This is preached about a lot. We hear it. He doesn't forgive your sins because He has to. He doesn't forgive your sins because of a legal obligation. He forgives your sins because He is bonded and attached to you. You are His bride. Can I tell you, my wife can do things that I'll overlook. I will not overlook it if you do it. Come on now. Let's get real for a minute. I love her. I love you too, but not like I love her. I mean, nobody can quite hurt your feelings like the one that you love, right? And it wouldn't be wise to try, would it? In anger, we've said things to each other that two people ought never say. But we made up. You and I might not get that chance. Jesus Christ doesn't forgive you because he has to. 
forgives you because he wants to. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Now, that's a wonderful benefit, isn't it? Say that's a wonderful benefit. Do you know that all of our covenant benefits are things that the Lord does for us, but he also expects us to do for other people? Write down Matthew 6, 12. It's the prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Because you have to? No, because you want to. See, to say I have to forgive you or I won't be forgiven is not forgiveness. You have to forgive them. Jesus didn't have to forgive you. He wanted to forgive you. You should want to forgive someone because you have been forgiven. You should love the freedom that God gave you. You should love the lifting of the weight, the burden so much that you want the other person to experience that. Do you hear the difference? Well, I have to forgive you versus, no, I want to forgive you. The Lord has been so good to me, I'm not going to choke you over this debt. Yeah, you know, it's funny. There's no amens for that, is there? Shall I call names? Now, now you're squirming. The benefits that we receive from the king, he gives to us and he expects us to give to others. Come on now. Are you a co-conspirator with Christ? Are you some kind of spiritually entitled brat? Co-conspirator? Are you extending his kingdom like it's been extended to you? Are you instead claiming as an obligation forgiveness, but not extending it as a benefit to others? It's funny how quiet it got here. Number two. He heals all your diseases. Come on now, that's cool, isn't it? Heals all your diseases. What does Matthew 10, 8 say? As you, pre as you go and preach the kingdom, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You are to be healed by the Lord, and what are you supposed to be doing? Healing in the Lord's name. How many of you have prayed for healing in your own life? What are the rest of you? You're lying? You're dead? What, what happened? How many of you have prayed for healing in your own life? How many of you have stretched, don't raise your hands, stretched out in a sacrificial, vulnerable way to lay your faith on the line and pray for healing in someone else's? See, when we want something, everybody better jump. But when they need something, then it's our option you hearing the breakdown between the love we say we have for the Lord and the love that we express towards other people? We want the Lord to keep his covenant with us without breaking, and he does. Do we keep our covenant with others without breaking, or do we redefine it and reinvent it? If you treat God like you're a Muslim, how will he treat you? In other words, if some new prophecy erases all the prophecies before, then you have a Mormon faith. A Muslim faith. If you can redefine the technical aspects, the grammar, then you have a Jehovah's, Je Jehovah's Witness faith. I have a biblical faith. Amen. His word doesn't change. Some people like to read their Bibles in Greek. Some people like to read them in Hebrew. I like to read it in the Holy Ghost. He put his spirit in me. 
to help me keep this covenant. And I know the voice of his spirit. And he's never inconsistent with himself. How about the third one? Redeems your life from the pit. You know, 1 Peter 1.18 says he redeemed us from our empty way of life. But what is Peter encouraging you to do? Go share your faith with others so they will be redeemed from their empty way of life. You beginning to see how this works? He did it for you so that you can do it for others. Amen? Amen. How about number four? Crowns you with love and compassion. Jesus loves you. He's had compassion on you. And in John 13, 34, he said, A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. The nature of the covenant is that it grows from one life to one family to whole nations. It is growing. The benefits that are yours were always meant for everyone else. The fifth one, satisfies your desires with good things. Have you ever read the parable of the sheep and goats in Matthew 25, 40? He said, whatever you've done unto the least of these, you've done for me. See, he feeds you spiritually and physically, and he expects you to feed others spiritually and physically. And when you do, you've done it for him. Do you see how real and active our covenant actually is? Number six, renews your youth like the eagles. Romans 12, 2 says that you need to renew your mind. We're also teaching others to renew their mind. There's nothing that makes you youthful more than having your mind renewed. And there's nothing that makes you old, decrepit, and irrelevant like sin. Look, i give you a little bumper sticker. You ready? Sin makes you stupid. If you don't believe that, follow me around for a week. You hear the stupidest excuses from the stupidest people about the stupidest sin you've ever heard in your life. People otherwise who have loved the Lord and were doing good, something cuts in on their faith, and in that moment they're trying to convince you that given their unique set of circumstances, you too would have sinned as stupidly as they did and somehow that would make everybody right instead of everybody damned. Oh, come on, man. We need our minds renewed. And when your mind's renewed, you're going to want to see others renewed. Brother Curtis called it new neural pathways. Man, you ought to see somebody when they break out of an old habit. You ought to see somebody when a revelation goes off, when what was hopeless is now filled with hope and they're spiritually soaring like an eagle. How about the seventh one? Works righteousness and justice for you. This reminds me of Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Others better than yourselves. Let the weight of that scripture hit you for a minute. Who in this room is better than you? Who do you actually feel like is better than you? Who are you treating like they're better than you? Husbands, practice on your wife. That is godly. You should do that. Treat her like she's more valuable. Treat her like she's better than you in every way. Wives, practice on your husband. You're supposed to be modeling this for your family so that you learn to do it for the rest of the world. When people can't do it with their husbands and wives, they certainly won't do it between households. But can I say we have far too little covenant between households. You know what a church is supposed to be? A covenant of households.
all joined together as co-conspirators in one vision. That's what we're supposed to be. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Man, that's a mouthful. Whatever the benefits of the covenant are to you are how you are to benefit your fellow man. And it starts with the family of God. It starts with the body of Christ. It starts with them that cannot do it back for you. This is why our church fo focuses on mission. So, no, no, pastor, you don't understand. We got to focus on our personal discipleship before we can get to missions. Then what would you be discipling them for? You better start with the target. Then you learn to draw the bowstring. If you don't start with what you're aiming at, you'll certainly never hit it. This is why churches have become self-help me centers. But I don't want to talk about them. I want to talk about you. Ecclesiastes 4 is something many people can quote. Let's put it on the screen. It's verse 9 and 10. And Matthew, you'll want to make your way here. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. What's better than one? Two. What's better than one? Two. Well, you and your wife, if you are considered by God one flesh, this doesn't count. In God's math, you and your wife are one. And what does he say is better than one? I'd like you to think about that for a minute. I'm not just trying to give you a riddle. If Jennifer and I count as one and not as two, then how do we get to two to be better than one? Well, that's where Matthew and Cassidy come in or Wade and Christy come in. Your spouse is not the two. Jesus didn't send out an apostle and their spouse. Ever. You can't find that recorded anywhere. He sent out two households together and they likely had wives because in God's math, a husband and a wife are a one, not a two. So why is that important? Because two are better than one. They have a good return for their work. It turns out that when people on earth are modeling a heavenly covenant, it spreads if you can see people in covenant. But if you see the great single household, then what we have is an anomaly, not a covenant. Does that make sense? We want the world to see that we love the Lord by the way that we love each other. We want the world to see the unity we have with the Father by the unity His Spirit has brought us into. So two have a better reward than one and your spouse doesn't count as the other half. single guys are like, uh, I got to get the other half to get to the two. <laughs> Galatians 5.13. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. All the security, all the freedom that you have should be funneled into loving action towards Jesus and those you're in covenant with. The fact that lightning didn't strike you the last time you zigged when you should have zagged is freedom. But it's not freedom to continue sinning, continue moving away from covenant and towards isolation. It's freedom to move towards those things. The fact that there is not a temporal penalty that has snuffed out your life 
that freedom was freedom to get it right, not freedom to continue to get it wrong. How are you going to use your freedom when this message is over? Will you continue to walk down the road of me, me, Susie, Johnny, us four, no more? Or will you find a way to partner with the lives of the people that are around you? Keep your covenant because your covenant is made before God. Oh, man. Romans 4, 18. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. The only way you'll ever be able to act against your self-interest is when you're fully persuaded that God has the power to do what He has promised. You will never deny self. You will never move into deep, lasting covenant unless you are fully persuaded that God is faithful to His covenant. Now let's be honest. If you say, I know the Lord will provide for me, but, and you spend the next 20 minutes biting your fingernails, you're not fully persuaded. You say, I know the Lord will take care of me, but you can't give to the next thing He told you to give to for fear you won't have enough. You're not fully persuaded. Maybe David needs Jonathan to help strengthen him in God. Maybe you need the fellowship of the covenant and a better return for your work because the next verse in Ecclesiastes said, if one falls down, the other will help him up. Maybe you need somebody to help you up. Fully persuaded. There is no such thing as a partial commitment to a covenant. Hey, Jen, I kind of sort of think I might want to marry you. She'd be a fool if she accepted that. Hey, Jen, I kind of like you, and as long as things are going well, we'll be together. You know what, Jen? I'd like to marry you for an indefinite period of time. I don't know. could be weeks, months, whenever we get it done, right? What would that look like? You better be fully persuaded. When you're fully persuaded, 100 years old, dead womb, all the Canaanite nations, birds of prey swooping down on you, relatives defecting from you, fighting for 20 years, you know what you get? What was promised. Fully persuaded and in covenant. This is what it means to be a co-conspirator with Christ. He set out resolutely for Jerusalem. He wasn't half persuaded. He wasn't one quarter persuaded. He wasn't, if this goes well with the Romans, I mean, we'll just have to kind of feel it out. Fully persuaded. The last thing that I'd like to leave you with is from the book of Revelation because we've not touched a New Testament prophecy yet. So the book of Revelation, the 11th chapter and the 19th verse.
How many of you know that the heavens are God's house and the earth is his footstool? You ever wondered how God furnishes his house? You know, we find out that Moses built a pattern, a copy of things that were in the heavens. We find out that what was on the earth was reflected in the heavens. I'd like to point to the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave to Jesus and was made known to John by sending an angel. So we're talking about top secret covenant kind of stuff. Then, God, then God's temple in heaven was opened. And within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant. Anybody ever wondered where the Ark of the Covenant is? I mean, Harrison Ford's still looking for it, right? <laughs> and there came flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. What on earth is God doing with the Ark of the Covenant? Maybe next to God's nightstand, so to speak, he wanted a physical symbol, a reminder of the covenant that he made with mankind so that he would always have before him a sign of the vows that were made because he is eternally faithful. Do you have a symbol of your covenant? See, as a wedding, we have a symbol in a ring. What symbolizes your covenant with your covenant partners? What symbolizes your promise made to another in the name of Jesus? When we have nothing that marks them in time, when we have no vows that are recorded, we forget about them at the first sign of difficulty and we are unfaithful. God is never unfaithful. Never. In fact, God who never forgets still has a sign of the covenant in the heavenly temple. Let that rest on you for a minute. Very often, you can cross a line in your life. It's your Jerry Maguire moment, so to speak. You have a revelation. You have something that causes you to take a stand, to take a step. And now that you've done that, nothing is ever the same again. There's no looking back. There's no letting up. There's no shutting up. There's no pretending it didn't happen. Once you cross the line, everything was different. What does that look like for you in your covenant with the Lord? As long as it's an inward private matter, as long as your promises were just between you and the Lord and no more, I'm suggesting you don't have a visible sign. The heavens were torn open and the whole world got to see the sign of God's faithfulness at the point that he completed his faithfulness on earth. What will you point to at the end of your life and say, I kept my word before God? What will you point to? I'm hoping that today becomes a monument stone for you where you realize that we are dealing with eternal matters when we're dealing with each other. I want you to know before the whole world, Wade Sutherland, Matthew Pirro, Charlie Brown, Baja Regina, we have a covenant with each other. It's not going away. It's not going away if one of them performs well or doesn't perform well. We have a covenant with each other. We are held accountable before God with that. We move in covenant with the blessing of covenant. Who are you accountable to? whose names would be in your jar? And in what way are you holding yourself accountable so that you don't live an unaccountable, unfaithful life? Now is the time you could consider that.
But I'm suggesting that rather than go home and build an Ark of the Covenant and try to hide it in the heavens somewhere, maybe something needs to happen in your heart first. You take a step out before the Lord and you say, Lord, I'm promising you this day these things, and I will never back up from them. Then you need to write them. You need others to see that you have written them, and you need to never back up on them. This is how the faithfulness of God that is heavenly is expressed on the earth. Lest you come to me in a few years and tell me that we all misunderstood what you said. Which is usually how this happens. Could you stand to your feet?